Okay, hello and welcome to episode 30 of Dano Says So. I've had a lot of people with a long story and an interesting story on the show. Today's guest is someone, no matter how long he and I talk, we're not going to get to everything. We have a zero fucking chance. There will always be pieces to this onion that can still be peeled, so we'll probably have to swing back at some point. Um, just in bio, you'll start to get an understanding of what I'm saying. I met Big Frank Harrison in 1984 at the time, and I doubt he remembers that, but at the time he was, I don't know whether, would you call it stage managing or running security? Um, uh, what, what show? This was, at the, this was at the Olympic, and I'll get into it in the interview. But so during, Probably during the Olympic, stage managing. Okay. Um, from, the, from there, you know, as a record hunting teenager, you know, I knew Frank through Zed Records. Um, he is one of my no, most notorious ex-bandmates in the best kind of way, because of Carrie Nation. <laughs> um, he is the founder of Nemesis Records, which was the launching point for some incredible acts. And for how many years now you, you, you've, you've had a, a career as a tattoo artist? Um, coming up on 30 years. Jesus, time flies. Well, listen, Big Frank Harrison, thank you for doing this, sir. Yo, my pleasure. <laughs> All right. So about the... Uh, the reason I interrupted the intro, uh, double checking on the details with that show at the Olympics. You remember the show first, I think it was probably the first circle jerk show back or first jerk, circle jerk show in a setting like that. And Keith Morris had, had, had broken his back. Okay, so was he wearing a back brace? He was. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. And for everything that was going on, the most striking thing to me, because it's a crazy ass show and everything else. Right was uh -huh. you got on the microphone, and I wasn't familiar with you, and basically told a thousand people, anyone bumps into this guy, you got to fucking deal with me. Oh, I and did? I, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go sit in the back. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was a hell of a first impression. You're dropping down out of camera a little bit if you want to play. Oh, sorry. sorry. No, you're good. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm starting to create that angle again. <laughs> Okay. It's, this, it's this big mandala behind me that's like throwing, maybe I should be sitting center. That's uh, all right. Uh, we're good. Okay, so anyway, that was one of a million stories that people bring out of the Olympic. Um, right. What was sort of the craziest space you had to do that job in? Uh, the Olympic was pretty crazy. Fenders was pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. um, craziest thing that happened at the Olympic? Um, well, besides seeing a kid try and climb the front of a speaker stack and mm -hmm. pull the stack over on himself okay. was pretty intense because yeah. I wasn't sure if I was going to find a body, you know, with just the legs sticking out like Wizard of Oz style or something. <laughs> right. But, but that, that was, that was pretty, um, pretty crazy i was actually sheltered from a lot of it because i had my old backstage area and backstage crew and right. you know and guys that would you know help me no matter what and right. and did i mean i had guys i had guys try and charge me for, like pretend they were down mm -hmm. and the second i turned my back they start going for me and if i didn't have friends <laughs> i think i would have been caught a couple times yeah no you had you had you had you had some uh you had some uh road tested individuals around you i remember that i remember the one yeah. or two times that you had me you had me work shows for you i was thinking what the name of god am i doing here 
<laughs> I never felt more more lily white and half cooked in Orange County in my life. Oh man, was it at a fe- it was probably a Fender. You had me work two shows at Fenders, and then you asked me, I think, to do either the Balboa Theater or some kind of Venice related show, and I was like, you know, Frank, I think I'm good. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, Centers of the Universe in Southern California in the '80s were the shows themselves, and then very much Zed Records. Right. When did you yeah. start at Zed Records? Um, I want to say somewhere around early '83. 80, okay. maybe a little earlier. All right. But I think it was, um, everything started happening at the time I was, um, I, I was living in um, Whittier and I was hanging out with the flip side people. Okay. And then, um, I don't know, from hanging around with them, like doors started opening. Like I right. went to, I went to a show, and I've told the story before, but I went to a UK sub show and jumped on stage and sang Stranglehold with Charlie Harper, and mm-hmm. and the lady that owns Zed Records said, we need him working at Zed Records. Mama and, Z. Yeah, Mama Z hired me on the spot, sight on, well, I guess sort of scene, but, but yeah, she just hired me, you know, and then I just, I quit being a regular part of society for you know quite a while yeah or the or, or the center of a sub society because for most kids my age in the 80s you made one or two trips to zeds a week and a big part of it was going to visit frank so thank you for yeah. being that oh no problem yeah um before we before we move along too fast on things like that i'm realizing when you brought up uk subs you and I know a lot of the same people through hardcore, through sort of very clean cut, sort of forward thinking hardcore, right? Sure. But we both have mileage in the even earlier punk rock than that. You much more so than me, right? Oh, I, I can go back even before punk rock. Oh, really? Well, have at it, sir. This is your episode. Oh, well, no, I was just thinking about it because everyone, everyone always goes back to the Golden Voice and the Zed Records and everything. Uh-huh. But when I was a little kid, I was, I was trying to be a sponsored, I was sponsored skateboarder really, and actually competed in contests with the original Z boys and, you know, competed up against, you know, a lot of the guys that ended up becoming, you know, big names, Tom Sims, Russ Howell, Tony Alva, Jay Adams. I never, I never would have had, I never, I never would have known, you know. I used to skateboard at, I used to ride my, um, my, my girlfriend's moped to the mm-hmm. concrete wave in, in Anaheim. Oh yeah. And it was, you know, good times. I remember. But you. that was, that was a, that was, I mean, that was a little bit of my introduction to punk rock was okay. I was seeing these guys at the skateboard park and they were talking about these places like the mask and and i could never no one would tell me where it was you know i mean i was just a kid i couldn't get out there anyway so how i got to the skate park on that moped is mind-boggling to think back on anyway but right but yeah yeah so that's just a little uh i don't know i don't know i remember i remember that you could skate because i cannot you were skating and you were doing, messing around on somebody's board, board in the parking lot at Zed once. 
And I mean, yeah. this is, you know, when you're a man of Hellboy dimensions, I was thinking, God, everybody's a fucking athlete, man. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. Well, I knew, I knew in interviewing you that you would be, you would be crumblingly humble and kind of looking forward to it, but you know, you've always, <laughs> You've always been a remarkably agile cat. It kind of freaks me out. Um, what, what do you you're, mean? You're dropping out of the thing again. Oh, I'm sorry. Frank. There we go. There All we right. go. I guess I should concentrate on me more than that. I keep looking. I keep trying to center on that mandala. Uh, I, I think people want to see that Frank. So okay. anyway. Um, there, I'm so, going to do it there. That's There better. we go. That is. That's perfect, actually. Okay. Well, music wise, so music wise, sir, sir, skateboarding leading into it. What are your first show memories? First show memories was yeah. uh, seeing um, a weeknight getting a ride out to see the weirdos at the whiskey, not okay. even headlining. They were just opening for some like new wave band and they were insanely amazing. And my other early memory is seeing the Ramones mm-hmm. with. Um, van halen opening for them right wow that's kind of and crazy i, I missed yeah. van halen <laughs> i didn't get to see van halen right. ever yeah. i uh what's what's funny is uh you've seen everyone else i remember uh you would have shows going at places like the whiskey and stuff and you would hire hardcore kids who sleep overnight to keep an eye on the equipment yeah you know and things like that and i was just i thought many 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 different times this cat's world is very different than mine yeah it was it was uh it was interesting to say the least okay so let's talk let's talk the zeds thing a crazy handful of personalities rolled through there i mean billy igby you know kate most of them were hired by me okay (laughs) um didn't nelson work there for a while um i think a very short while and i think that was one of those cases where very much i i think i did the same thing with ron martinez i was like i want to still be your friend so i don't think you should work here okay well um let's talk let's talk zed records there's i don't know how much you talk about doing running a record store or running a record store with the zampellis or you know being a part of the record store but it was the place to get anything independent and get anything on vinyl how much did your role at zed's uh, influence you're deciding to do a label. Oh, I've wanted to make this point forever. Yeah. And the okay. point is that I would not have done Nemesis Records if it hadn't been for Workshed Records. <laughs> I saw what you were doing and I wanted to do some something like it. I, it was a combination of you and then Johnny from Sympathy for the Record Industry, who mm-hmm. released like 500 records in a two years, you know, ridiculous right. amount of time. He released like 507 inches. And I was like, well, I can release a handful <laughs> if right. he can well, release 500. I mean, I guarantee you, even despite national distribution, the workshed would not have moved as many units as we did if we didn't have an anchor in Zeds, you know. The shelves yeah. and Zeds were the first place we went with records, and they were the place we had to restock the most often. Yeah. Um, let's let's jump then. Let's go. To, let's go to the label, and we'll circle. We'll circle back on doing music. Um, okay. Workshed had some like very strict confines, and this is not about Workshed, but it was. I only did Orange County bands. Right. Um, I had to feel some kinship to 
to the specific things that the bands were singing about, which made it somewhat narrow artistically. And I think in a way I played a little too much of an active role in sort of telling the bands where I thought they should be headed. You had a much more open door and sprayed to a much wider field. What was sort of your mindset or sort of your mental framework as far as building Nemesis? When I started, I had, um, I had, um, I just wanted to help my friends. You know, I was just like, oh, I can, you know, it'll be, you know, like visual discrimination kind of got messed around in their previous deal. So I wanted to make it real smooth and easy. And Kane, as you well know, made that possible for us at at the time. And um, yeah, it, it changed. It, it changed because like when I picked up Pitchfork, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, San Diego. San Diego could be another Seattle, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to be a part of it. I, I just wanted to be a, you know, I, I, I knew just because there was good bands in Seattle, I knew there was good bands down here, you know, and mm-hmm. just, and same thing with East Coast meets West Coast. I was like, East Coast gets so much attention and like the West Coast, wasn't really well represented i didn't feel which is backwards beyond fucking words sir but yeah. anyway, um <laughs> let's uh what was what was nemesis one nemesis one was visual discrimination okay so that's back and listen all right well, how far into things did that offspring lp come that was uh a little bit later um mm-hmm. and I'm doing it again. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the Offspring was um, kind of a... I, I was good friends with Mark Rude. And, of mm-hmm. course, when I saw the cover, I was like, well, Mark's doing the cover? Um, I'm in, you know? And and then, because I, me and Mark were friends from Battalion of Saints days. We okay. both, like, hung out with them quite a bit. And I really, really liked Mark's style of art i was really bummed when they he re-released it and changed the artwork and just that, that was that, i thought that was a strange move too yeah but was, I just, well it, it's a, it's a strange move because i never wanted anything from offspring okay and, but i think i tried if you read some of the press that um brian dexter whatever the hell he calls himself he um he he would be nice to me and mm-hmm. then he'd say I was the absolute scourge of the offspring. And I never did anything to help that band. I'm just like, what? Um, do you forget the Fugazi sold out Fugazi show that you played with four one one when any band would have probably given their left ear to right. play that show at that time. There was nothing easier to become quite accidentally than the villainous label head when you're dealing with bands that are putting out their first record or two. They don't understand mm-hmm. that from your manufacturer, you're seeing, you know, you're not really seeing any financial return. You're paying them in vinyl because you're sitting on vinyl. Right. You know, and all these situations. In hindsight, I think a lot of a lot of bands outgrow that perception. But early on, yeah, very easy to have people that you've really put your blood and sweat into making their music happen become dissatisfied with you. So I can relate to I can relate to what I'm hearing right there. Yeah. Well, yeah, everyone's different and everyone has 
different ideas and different ideas about where they should be going and maybe obviously different ideas about what my role in all of that was and you know, right. you ever, you did know. you ever pass on anybody that you look back now and say whoops um there was there was a handful of bands that i was getting ready to do mm -hmm. that that i um wish i would have done but I, I, no, nobody nobody the, the only band um i remember rocket Okay. Rocket, Rocket was asking me if I'd do their first album. Yeah. And I was already on the way out the door. And I was like, shit. You, you know, know what the thing about the Death Paint is a fragrance, right? Yeah. It's not my record. favorite record. I, I cannot stand looking at that thing. It's a, it's a I, 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 can't, I don't really like that record, but I like all their other records. Yeah, I love that record. But okay. I, pa I passed on Inside Out because Zach wanted it to be a 12 inch debut. I'm kind oh of wishing, my goodness! Oh, I'm kind of really? kind of wishing I could walk that little genius move back. Yeah. Oh yeah. well. Yeah. Um. But then you'd uh, then you'd be in the same. Everybody be bugging you all the time about when the Inside Out reunion is going to happen. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't cotton to that real well. Um. Okay. So that puts us. That puts us in the 88s, 89s, 90s. That is active carry nation territory. Um, okay. We flirted with the band. We flirted with the band, doing a band together in 85 or 86. We circled back in the waning days of No For An Answer and actually did it. Um, our perceptions on that whole thing have been a little bit different, but we seem to be more and more of the same mind as years passed by. But I I'm curious to hear your version of the Carry Nation story. Not meaning sides, but meaning when it started, what the experience was like, what it was like walking into it, um, how you felt. I, I felt like Hooked off quick as far as the shows went and everything else, but I would like to hear Carry Nation as told by Frank from Carry Nation. Oh, I was like, wow. Uh, the, um, you know, it was just, I, I felt like I, I finally, you know, and I finally had my own ship to, to steer, mm -hmm. you, you know, and I felt like I was part of something good. And when we used to rehearse, it was just so. Like it would just come together like instantly, like, you know, you know, I don't know, maybe Gavin was being kind to me, not making me play like Getty Lee or something. Uh, I but, think that music was player friendly. I, I, yeah, it was definitely player friendly. I credit a lot of the ease with which Carrie Nation used to assemble things. I credit a lot of that to Steve. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Steve, Steve, definitely a backbone. You can you can you can you can rumble a pair of bolts around in a tin can, and once he sets a beat to it, you've got music. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but like for instance, like a funny story. The first time I ever practiced is a single song with you. Dave Mello's in the room playing with us, and I didn't know he was coming. So how the yeah, hell did that you, know, you know what he he was um, when I quit Golden Voice mm -hmm. and went to work for Pacific Concerts, mm -hmm. who actually were the ones who helped me put on the the Iceman Cometh show, okay. you know, at the Whiskey. Dave was always my right-hand man. And so, yeah. like, when you, he just happened to be with me when you guys asked me to come over and rehearse. So they go, well, why don't you come too? You can mm -hmm. play, like, second guitar or something, you know, we'll figure right. something. And they were, you guys were, I think, pretty uh, excited that Dave was there too. Well, suddenly in a band that we had started, I think we felt out chime. 
we got we got we got Frank from Zeds in the Olympic and Dave from Uniform Choice practicing in our rinky dink little outfit. And then Steve was one of the best drummers going at the time, and Gavin and I felt like we pulled off a stunt. We were like, yeah. eh, nobody knows. <laughs> I always said Steve had the best deal, like when it came down to that whole epitaph thing. You right. know, and, and like, I want to do an album. I want to do an album, you know. And um, Steve's just sitting back. Uh, I win either way. I get to do an album either with Instead or Carry Nation. So, right. Well, I mean, so the, the, the story that you and I are telling right now, that, that I think is 86, which means it's pre for an answer. The Carry oh, okay. Nation that actually recorded the seven inch and played shows was a decision that I think we essentially came to in Zed Records. I don't know what it was. You and me and Gavin are talking, or Gavin and I talking, and then letting you know. But it was it was, you know, at the height of shows going on at the country club, of you and I both actually putting on shows in 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 I mean, you know my stuff was smaller, um, but it was kind of a perfect storm. Uh, what was the first? What was the first Carrie Nation show? I know where it was. But which one was first? It was with Bad Religion. Yeah, that's a nice start. That's a nice launching pad. A sold out bad religion show. And we got a live record with bad religion at the country yeah. club on Nemesis Records out of it. So hard to complain. I wish I would have done more. Yeah. I wish so I would have done that agnostic front show. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. we I, I, Gavin and I were both there. Why didn't we do that? Was that when I was starting to get puffy and puffy? No, it was just work? it was just stupidity on my part. It, like why I didn't have a pocket full of cassettes and like record every show i did okay because i sh i should have done the the gorilla biscuits instead show i wonder if I, some know? of that stuff would have gotten legally sticky down the road probably not yeah i don't know everything i knew i was able to navigate sick of it all and slap yeah. shot and right so in carry nation yes um it was bigger sounding than no for an answer it was decidedly more primal than no for an answer Right. Um, yes. And in that, I feel like it kind of got over quicker and went bigger with people. And that I'm just kind of sharing this with you. That wasn't what I was looking for going in. Oh, I so, know. I, I knew I knew you didn't. I mean, I think at one point you told me that you didn't even want to play live. You just wanted to do the seven inch and that was going to be it. And we, oh, we got to play live. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, you were right. And you got us great shows. Um, my thing was that. I didn't, I wasn't crazy about the direction hardcore was going in. Right. And I wanted to do something that was more resistant to it. If you look at Gary Nation lyrics, particularly the lyrics to something like Face the Nation. Yeah. I mocked a lot of what we actually really resembled, you know. For sure. Which is just, you know, the militancy and the thugger, the thuggy aspect of it. Um, oh, but, it got worse. Yeah. But I mean, how did, but did the band strike you that way or was I, was that my, in hindsight, I think that may have been my own paranoia. Yeah. Well, I just, I just think that, um, you know, in hindsight, you know, we had a, sh a shelf life, you know, and mm -hmm. we weren't, we weren't loaded up with preservatives, you know, so <laughs> it just, it ran its course, you know, it burned bright and, you know, it burned out quick, I guess, so, you know, but, and you, you, you know, and I mean, I, I, I really got some insight when I listened to you and Gavin talk mm -hmm. about like the directions you got, you know, you wanted to do 411, he was doing mm -hmm. Trigger Man, and here's this dinosaur over here that wants to just, I want to keep doing Carrie Nation, you know, it's like, 
Well, I, mean, to, I just wanted an album, you know. To, I mean, def I, to defend the dinosaur perspective, I was talking to Joe Nelson yesterday. Uh huh. And Joe was saying, you know, that's a band that if you'd stuck with it, probably would have been bigger than most of your bands. And 30 years down the line, I gotta, I gotta admit, he's probably right. You know? Who knows? It would, I just think it would have been in my head, it was like to be on Epitaph, and we would have been on Epitaph before Rancid, before Offspring, those little, <laughs> you know, that would have been, that would have been nice, but, you know, it just wasn't meant to be, you know, and then even like years later, I, I tried to get a job at Epitaph, mm -hmm. and I couldn't even get a return phone call. The world changed so much by maybe 94, you know, this probably yeah. started in 91, 92, by 94, things that we used to consider i think local resources were now lofty business you know yeah and i uh by 94 i was well into tattooing and just like not looking behind i was actually you know trying to make a clean break you Tell know me why. Just, that's interesting um i was well i you know i i kind of went into it in the book a little bit with um you know i was just tired of the music business i was tired of being accused of doing things that i wasn't doing mm -hmm. and you know constantly defending myself and on the other hand you know you've got i don't know how much you had to deal with him but that eric from cargo records the the guy who kane used to have to answer to yeah that, that guy just didn't like me you know i never and talked so, to like, him I, just, I, I chose never to talk to him at all Oh, see, I, I thought, oh, this guy's going to love me. I'm making, you know, I've got to be helping Cargo with all my mm -hmm. releases, you know, and, and he just, he never once, and I'm doing it again. God darn it. Hey, Sorry. More like 70% of the people only, only do this thing on audio, but yeah, you got to take care of my viewers, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Sorry, viewers. <laughs> uh, where were we? We were talking what Cargo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just—it was just a bitter time, you know. I was just—I just wanted to. I didn't dislike hardcore, and I actually ended up in another hardcore band when I lived in Sacramento. And I—I I thought they were, you know, they actually, the guys in that band made us look small. <laughs> the singer was six foot seven, probably close to three hundred pounds, and not much fat on his body. That would have brought me all kinds of new insecurity. That's fantastic. Um, he was we, were talking, scary. we were talking even more than cargo. We were talking about you making a clean break, and it's funny when Billy and I talked about the potential about interviewing you. Right? Mm -hmm. He talked. He said you might have some interesting things to say about the toxicity of the spotlight or visibility, and about how for some people it's maybe good to step away from it. You know, I don't know if he's right or not. But what do you think of that? It is good to step away and, and then look at where you were. You know, I, I don't know. It seems, for me, it was the right thing to do. Okay. It's what I needed to do at the time because I really, I mean, I had to fully immerse myself in tattooing to to do it. You know, it was like, it isn't something you can just like, like kind of casually do. You got to kind of give yourself over to it. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, it takes up every minute of every day just drawing and tattooing and trying to stay relevant and 
you know, this is all pre-social media too. So at the time, like I'm constantly trying to send photos to magazines and trying to just get a little piece of the pie, you know, trying to get my little piece of the pie and, you know, with mixed results. I've always heard nothing but good things, but it made, if you ever want to talk about a dude falling comfortably into a persona, when I was living in the Bay Area, and I heard you had gone north too, and I'm like, "What is he doing there?" Well, he's, you know, he's a professional tattoo artist now. I was like, "Well, yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all." You, know, <laughs> you were the first sleeved person I ever met in my young, sheltered, you know, mid twentieth century life. Um, wow. Yeah, and uh, you you do it justice. Let's talk about something that I don't know whether it's difficult or not. It's not a situation I've ever been in, but in 2016, I played a benefit with Youth Brigade Excel. Final conflict. I'm forgetting who else was on the bill at the El Rey Theater. It's the only time I've played the El Rey Ill Theater. Repute. Uh, Ill repute. Okay. Yeah. Excel. Excel. Final conflict. Youth brigade. Youth brigade. Chorus and Dundas. Chorus. That's the bill. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um. Thank you for the, thank you for the assist. In any case, the thing that brought all of those bands together was your medical situation. Why don't you tell me what happened that year? Oh man, it's it, it still gives me chills to think about. Um, I, when I moved to Santa Rosa, um, my wife and I opened, uh, animal, I, I was tattooing full time, but then I was kind of getting tired of the, the, just the day-to-day dredge of like dealing with people who have poorly thought out ideas you know (laughs) and and sitting there waiting for them to come in the door so i can pry their money out of their pocket into my pocket but oh god now i've lost track of what what we were talking about well we're talking we're talking about your health scare that year okay okay i don't know how i get off on these tangents anyway so oh yeah animal care business so i'm walking animals on various days okay and 90 percent of the time i would be alone okay for some reason on the night of my heart attack Mm -hmm. i um had my daughter with me nine eight or nine times out of ten i would have been alone and i wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now but she she revived me she she brought me back i don't even know how many times and then you know i mean my own daughter saved my life you know while until the paramedics got there mm-hmm. and then then i was put in put on ice as they say to i was basically in a forced coma for three four days and and like not expected to survive my survival rate was supposedly under five percent like people that die out in the field like that Mm -hmm. don't usually come back well we're glad you did thanks (laughs) me too Um, what has the road back been like um i mean what what you know that i would imagine that forces a handful of lifestyle changes and i would imagine it creates a perspective that i have not experienced um as far as perspective i'd say you know i'm blessed and grateful you know 
for what I do have. And it's been, you know, like that year that it all happened, everybody coming together for me was like, God, it was just like, I mean, it was like, it was like my heart was being rebuilt by my friends. Right. You know, and it, it, it's, it's been harder. I'd say it's been harder now because as, as I go along, I'm, I'm constantly having to adjust my heart meds and like the offside of heart meds is I'm get really tired easy. It's hard to regulate my body temperature. So I like right now, I'm, I, the whole house could be hot and I'm in here freezing because okay. just because I just think they're trying to keep my heart beating at a slow rate. Okay. But that the side effect of that is my circulation is maybe a little slower, mm-hmm. you know, and I just, I just have to, you know, deal with things like weather and stuff just hit me harder. Are you going to be able to keep tattooing? Oh yeah, I, I, I okay. can. All right. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I have no plans on on on, on stopping the, any of that. How has how has the year of the plague affected that? The animals or the tattooing? No, 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 no. COVID. How has I COVID mean, affected the, tattooing? Oh, it's sh- shut it down on numerous occasions. I I I haven't I haven't touched my tattoo machines in six months. I haven't even touched them. Listen, my thinking, my thinking is you are perhaps the most traveled dude I've had on right now. And you are, or as terrifying as I found you in my youth, you are, seem to be very comfortable and very zen these days. So this was a pleasure. I want to give you a chance to throw in anything you want to, or if you have any advice or any perspective you want to toss out there before we go, uh, please do it. Oh, advice or perspective. Um, I just, as far as being more, more Zen, I mean, that's, I think I having a near death experience makes you really realize how little all these, you know, how petty all these little squabbles we have, you know, in the Mm -hmm. big scheme of things, you know, it's just like, but this year, this year has been very trying very very trying for all of us you know and i was good for like i'd say six or eight months of it and then it just started eating at me too you know it's just like how much of this are we gonna have to do you know i mean like when am i i haven't even i still haven't even gotten a vaccination and i'm in a high risk group yeah no get that done sir oh i i want to as soon as they'll let me (laughs) i'm the heaviest i've ever been I have not seen my 83-year-old father since last February. Um, you know, I'm sending him stuff in the mail. And when the funk hits, it hits hard. I get some real downers. And I find it hard to create to create. It's like trying to bring artistic things. It's like it's like try it's like trying to hike in mud. So I feel you. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's it's hard. Like I was doing I was doing commission paintings for a while and and I I it's just it's just hard to get motivated right now, you know, and I'm trying to turn it around day by day, but you know, it's just, it's just hard until, until I can go out and like interact with people and again, cause mm-hmm. it's, it's just going to continue to be hard. 
Well, it's coming. It's definitely yeah, coming. I, I know. I, I know. sometimes I, I think I, it's sometimes I think it's coming faster than it should, but it's coming. Yeah. You know. Have you talked to Steve since uh since he went down? No, I didn't know he went down. Oh man, Steve was on a ventilator for like three weeks. Oh my god, no, I did not know this. Well, guess what, Frank? You have an assignment today. You need to call your drummer. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, yeah. I didn't even know that. I mean that's yeah. crazy. Steve's on a ventilator. Not not anymore. Yeah. But but I mean, like my aunt and my mom and my aunt both got it. Uh-huh. And I mean, they're fragile old women and somehow they survived. Well, I mean, you know? and, and he's this bearded hockey playing animal who can play drums for days and he got it. So people need to know it's no joke. You know. Yeah, you know, I mean, and if if I was to get it, uh-huh. You know, I mean, I have, you know, I have issues with asthma. I've had pneumonia. I've been hospitalized for pneumonia. This is all like when I was a kid, you know, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, I've, I've got a lot of the, the, the warning signs that I have to be extra careful. Yeah. No, I, because I don't want to be on a ventilator because no, I, you... if I went on one, I'm not coming off. If I was living your story, I think I'd be sitting there in a hazmat suit right now, sir. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh... <laughs> Listen, Frank, I am going to wrap this up right now. Uh, please know that I will be swinging back again sometime to pick your brain. Okay. Uh, but uh, what do you call it? I hope you enjoyed yourself. I know I did. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Great times. Okay. All right. Well, Big Frank Harrison, that is episode 30. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Good to see you, Dan. Likewise. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.